Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hello, Deep State Radio listeners. To celebrate the launch of our new login and feed management system, we are offering membership for just $5 per month or $50 per year. Members receive access to exclusive bonus content, an invitation to the DSR Slack community, an ad-free listening experience, a nightly newsletter version of the DSR Daily Brief podcast, and more. To take advantage of this offer, please visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy. There is no need to enter a promo code. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy. Thank you very much. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from someplace not too far from New York City. We are joined today by Rosa Brooks, who holds the Scott K. Ginsburg Chair in Law and Policy at Georgetown University Law Center, Georgetown University Law Center, where she also serves, and we're always happy about this, as the Associate Dean for Centers and Institutes. How are you doing, Rosa? Um, I've had better weeks, David. Our centers and institutes are, are mired in controversy. Are they? But it's not my fault, I swear. Oh, yes, they have been mired in controversy, haven't they? Indeed, indeed, indeed. So I'm really happy that we get to talk about more cheery things, such as the prospects of nuclear conflict today. (laughs) Yes, while hunting prairie dogs. And speaking of that, we have with us Tom Nichols, who's a contributing writer and the proprietor of the Peacefield newsletter at The Atlantic. Hi, Tom. Any good prairie dog hunting today? No, but I thought I'd set off a couple of... uh low-yield, low-kiloton nuclear weapons to take out some squirrels and raccoons that have been bothering my bird feeder. So I'm sure that Senator Thune would appreciate that. And for those of you who don't know what we're talking about, Google Senator Thune. And we are also joined today by our friend, General Mark Hurtling. General Hurtling is the former commanding general of the United States Army in Europe and the 7th Army. How are you today, Mark? I'm doing great, David. It's great to be with you all. Yes. Well, we are delighted to have you. Let me start with you, Mark. We've witnessed something that we thought was inevitable with regard to this Ukraine conflict, which is that the interest levels in it have faded a bit. What was perhaps not inevitable was that there has been a bit of a drumbeat from people as diverse as France's President Emmanuel Macron and Henry Kissinger that maybe we ought to find a way to deal with Putin. President Zelensky has responded to this by saying, essentially, buzz off. This is our war. We're fighting this. We do not have any intention of giving up any land to the Russians. By implication, he was dismissive of Macron's 
suggestion that, uh, you know, Putin's feelings might be hurt if we pressed on with this too much. And, uh, you know, so the question is, given the state of play right now, is in your eyes, Zelensky speaking from a position of strength? Absolutely. I, I didn't think that's where the question was going, David, but uh, he absolutely is, is speaking from a position of strength, in my view. He has been successful on the battlefield. He's been successful in, in garnering support from nations around the world, not just NATO and the United States, but others. And he has shown himself to be a terrific leader in all of this. Putin, on the other hand, has become a world pariah. He has taken his country down the drain, in, in my humble soldier opinion. I actually think Zelensky has certainly has the upper hand. And I would, again, being a soldier, I would refuse to offer any advice to any political leaders like President Macron, because I know most political leaders don't take soldiers' advice anyway. But he, he should have learned by now, and he absolutely has not yet. So it's just confusing to me between President Macron and the New York Times offering suggestions on what the leader of a sovereign state should do in terms of their regaining territorial gains. Yeah, as we're evaluating this, Tom, I certainly think there's a lot to commend Mark about, but choosing to be an American general rather than a Russian general seems like a good choice in terms of job security and longevity. They lost two more yesterday. For all their gains, they seem to be struggling a bit there. What, do you agree, Tom? I do, but it's important not to get too caught up in this because the Russians have the ability to sit there, particularly in eastern Ukraine, and simply grind away and kill a lot of people. You know, from the strategic point of view, the Russians already lost the war. That happened months ago, right? I mean, the, the whole point of this was to capture Ukraine intact. It was to, you know, march into Kiev, have flowers thrown at their feet. That's, that's gone. That's, that one's over. So the war is lost. The question now is, how many Ukrainians will Putin murder to avenge the loss that he has experienced? And he can do a lot of that, especially because, as any Russian general can tell you, he doesn't care about the, the lives of the officers and men under his command. So, you know, the Russians, it, it, it is pretty dangerous to be a Russian general. It's amazing to me that although they there is some talk about how they have, you know, straightened out their command and control problem. They're still having to send one and two stars up to the front to unscrew things that probably could be handled by a major at, at most. But let's not lose sight of the fact that if the new Russian goal is simply to pummel and Ukraine and murder Ukrainians until the world gets exhausted by this and Putin makes some kind of incremental territorial gain, they have a lot of ability to do that. So, Rosa, I want to turn to you the subject you know best. How many sub submarines does the Ukrainian Navy have? <laughs> <laughs> More than zero and, and less than 600. I'm quite certain about that. It's actually, interesting. The, the answer to that question is more than zero and less than one. Hey, because, come on. No, because they had one until Russia seized Crimea and they lost it when they seized Crimea. Oh, God. I told you not to ask me about submarine statements. I know. That's why I always and ask you about submarines. <laughs> I know. I shouldn't have. You'd never admit weakness because David, David, he goes for that whole submarine thing every single time, damn it. You know, one of the things that I was really struck by in, in the news in the last few days, speaking of weaknesses, was the, the piece in the Times 
think it was just uh, today or yesterday, on the difficulty the Ukrainians are having in figuring out, you know, how to use some of the more advanced weapon systems with which we've been providing them. And, and, and this is this is one of the difficulties, obviously, the Russians have had too, you know, that if you put soldiers out there who don't have training and haven't practiced over and over and over and over again, sheer numbers will only get you so far. And, you know, on the Ukrainian side, that the the weapon systems with which we're providing the Ukrainians are only as good as the ability of the Ukrainians to make appropriate use of them. There was, it was sort of a, a poignant uh, vignette in this New York Times piece about this, about uh, a Ukrainian sort of saying, look, I, you know, I got the u- user's manual in English and I was trying to, you know, use Google Translate to figure out how the heck to use this thing. That's obviously not going to be helpful. I, and I think it points to one of the one of the challenges ahead for the Ukrainians is that we can keep throwing stuff at them and they appreciate it. And, and in, in the past, in the past few months, they've obviously made extraordinarily good use of many of the weapons that the West has supplied to them. But we may be kind of bumping up against some, some hard limits there as well. Obviously, it's not only the Russians who have been taking casualties. I think the Russians have been taking you know, a disproportionate number of casualties given their supposed strengths from the outset. But obviously, as Tom suggests, as this turns into just a, you know, a long, slow slog in which the Russians are perfectly happy to continue to throw conscripts into this, and the Ukrainians are going to continue to lose people, they're going to continue to lose people with expertise, that there's an extent to which no matter how many fancy weapon systems we give them, it's not going to be super helpful to them if they don't have both enough people and enough people who actually know what to do with those. So I, I think we're actually, we're, in, we're, we're going to have fewer front page stories, I think. We're already seeing that on Ukraine as we enter this period in which it is much more of a slow chipping away on both sides. And, and I do worry that the Russians ultimately still have the advantage just in the combination of sheer numbers and their cheerful willingness to sacrifice their own people as the Ukrainians begin to run short of people and run short of people with expertise. I do worry that the, the, this could be shifting. I completely agree with Tom that strategically the Russians have lost, but that doesn't mean they're going to stop. You know, and that doesn't mean that they can't continue to cause a huge amount of misery, particularly at a moment when the West, we, we notoriously have a short attention span. And you can see already that the, the interest of the public has waned quite substantially. And I, I worry that the political will in Western capitals is also obviously we're seeing signs that that is beginning to, to fray as well. Yeah. And, and of course, in some Western capitals, Mark, as in uh, the case of Germany and France, also Italy to some extent, there has been some hesitation. Those big countries in Europe, with the exception of the UK, and I don't know if we count them being in Europe anymore, are kind of the soft center. Uh, I saw a list of countries' contributions to Ukraine today, and the biggest contributions in terms of GDP have been from the Baltics, Poland, and also the US. I think we were fourth or fifth in that list. These other countries are lagging. Do you worry about what what Rosa is flagging here? Or alternatively, as some people have argued, Phillips O'Brien, some other people have argued, as more and more of these weapons fall into the hands of, get you know, arrive with the Ukrainians and the Ukrainians learn how to use them, that they're going to gain a kind of material advantage in pushing back on the Russians. 
think the combination of the increased weaponry that many nations are sending them and their the will that they already came in with, the will to fight, defend a, a territory, to defend their sovereignty is critically important. I've been saying that from the very beginning. The one thing I'd, I'd kind of like to comment on what Rosa mentioned about the New York Times piece, because it's something that truthfully I've been saying from the very beginning, we should not be throwing weapons at the Ukrainians. We should not be sometimes listening to some of the politicos who are suggesting what we need to give them because it puts them at a disadvantage, much like Russia is at a disadvantage in terms of maintenance and resupply and logistics training. When we were training Ukrainian forces at Yavoriv, when I was still commanding in Europe, we trained them up to the point of battalion level operations, combined arms operations, infantry, armor, artillery coming together. What we did not focus as much on, and which is sorely needed in this phase of the operation, is the logistics and the supply trains. Uh, that's upper echelon level stuff. That's operational art stuff. And I don't think Ukraine's army is as good as they are at pulling triggers and doing the things that they need to do with the weapon systems they receive. They are not getting the spare parts. They are not getting the kind of logistics support that they need for these more modern weapon systems. I'll give an example. In this last package that President Biden signed, the $40 billion package, all the sexy stuff was up front, you know, more javelins, more HIMARS, the HIMARS that first tranche went over, the, the helicopters that were part of it. What wasn't noted as much was the fact that we were sending resupply parts for the paladins that they have now been firing for several weeks. What do I mean by that? We gave them close to six battalions worth of artillery pieces, and they have been doing masterful work on the front lines. We gave them at the same time 200,000 rounds to fire through those artillery pieces. What they're now experiencing is something I predicted about six weeks ago is tube burnout. So they have to replace tubes on an artillery piece as soon as it hits about 2,000 rounds per tube. Do they know how to do that? Can they maintain that source? Or do, are they just leaving guns on the battlefield? The same thing occurred with the early javelins that we sent them. The javelin is part of a couple of pieces of equipment. It's the rocket launcher and the sight system that has a night vision capacity. Well, when they weren't firing the rockets, they were using the night vision capacity to see at night, rightfully so. Unfortunately, that burned out the batteries on the rocket system. So you're seeing some things that, yeah, they are told to do this or do that, just like American soldiers are told, but sometimes discipline is not as, as it should be and it causes maintenance and resupply problems. That's what we're experiencing. It has become, it was the Achilles heel of the Russian forces when they first entered this fight. Now it's become to a degree, the Achilles heel of the Ukrainian force. So I'm concerned about that. From the political perspective, as you and Rosa and Tom have all said, yeah, I'm very concerned that as we drag further and further into the summer months, when there's tactical slugfest going on in the East, and in the south near Kherson, that we are going to lose interest because the reporters aren't at the front lines on that. They are in the rear saying, well, this is what we think is happening. And there's a lot going on in the front. It is, it is not stalled. It is not what one might call a stalemate. I'd suggest it's more of a slugfest. I was in Europe this past Memorial Day weekend going to some cemeteries, and I happened to be near Chateau Thierry looking over the hilltop where the Battle of Belleau Wood was fought in 1918. 
And I remember being there a few years ago with Elliot Cohen and his students from SACE. And one student said, we'll never see a war like this again as we wandered through the trenches and looked at the river lines and looked at this city that was now thriving, but still bore the potholes of World War I. And I agreed with him. Well, we're seeing exactly that. And it's become a slugfest on the Western Front. In this case, it's a slugfest on the Eastern Front. Tom, you know, there's slugfests and then there are slugfests. And as you look out over the months ahead, clearly we've been talking about one sort of set of challenges here. Another set of challenges for the Russians, however, has to do with the idea of an an insurgency forming in areas that they control or that they would like to control. And we have seen some signs in, in several areas of better organized, better armed insurgency. And it doesn't look like the Ukrainians are going to simply roll over, play dead, accept lines that are drawn on the battlefield. And that these attacks from within, from behind the lines, from insurgents are obviously very difficult to deal with. We've found this in a variety of different situations around the world. The Russians certainly found this in Afghanistan and other places as well. How do you evaluate the prospects for that element of this conflict? One thing, the Russians have learned all the wrong lessons from from 2014, because in 2014, they took Crimea, which is, you know, 90 percent, 95 percent Russian, and which until the 1950s had been part of Russia within the Soviet Union. You know, they said, well, that hasn't been too hard to hold on to. Well, yeah, but that's not what you're doing here. I guess it leads to the question, you would ask the Russians, since you are finding that no one wants you here and they're going to murder anybody you put into power, what is it you think you're doing? What is it you want here? I've been trying to write up something circling around this question of what is it that anybody thinks in in Moscow is going to happen here? I don't think we should be expecting a kind of a red dawn insurgency, but rather that you don't want to be the Russian appointed mayor of a Ukrainian city. You're going to get whacked. You know, it's just that simple. You, the people around you hate you. They are never going to stop hating you. They are never going to accept this. And I think the Russians somehow, Putin in particular, who thinks he is an authority on Ukraine, really believe that if they were just kind of relieved of this this loathsome burden called freedom and independence, that they would just join with Moscow, come back under the Moscow Orthodox Patriarchate, you know, that Kiev would be just another Russian city. I mean, he really bought his own bullshit here. And 2014 helped to convince him of that. Now, he doesn't really know what to do. I mean, I think one of the things that we should always emphasize when we're talking about this is the Russians don't know what they're doing. We, we want to impute agency and purpose and strategic thought. But the fact is, these guys literally don't know what they're doing anymore. The, uh, you know, plan A went down the toilet and there is no plan. I've said this many times. Plan A went to hell. There is no plan B. And so the insurgency part of this, again, I think is going to flummox the Russians because they're not going to be able to Again, we've all seen, I hope we've all seen Red Dawn, one of the greatest movies ever made, as cheesy and horrible as it is. You know, you're not going to send the Spetsnaz colonel who's going to, you know, say, yeah, you know, I am a hunter. I'm going to take these guys out. You're going to be dealing with every day 
whoever's in charge of these Russian held areas is going to be looking over their shoulder because the guy at the at the you know supermarket could turn around and take you out. That's the kind of ins- it's not. That's why I'm, I guess I was pushing back on the word insurgency. You're just not going to be able to control these areas. And I keep wondering when we talk about the Russian control of these occupied parts of Ukraine, what does that even mean to the Russians? Because it is a net drain on them. They're not going to take over these places and enjoy additions to their population and coal and oil and nuclear, whatever they think they're getting. This is just going to be a long slog living among people who hate everyone associated with you. That didn't happen as much in Crimea, but it's happening here. And I'll just add one last thing. Part of the reason this is happening is that a lot of the Russian atrocities have actually been aimed against Russian speakers, which is something that the, the media kind of hasn't quite sussed out because the Russians think that the Russian speakers who didn't greet them as liberators are the worst traitors of all. And they have been butchering them and brutalizing them. So the Russians now are stuck occupying places where they have no friends at all. They have nobody who wants to be on their side, which again, leaves you with the question of what is it you think you're going to do here? So I think that, you know, Mark's description of a long summer slog is really important, but even as the Russians gain territory, which I think they're going to do, I think we've all been a little overly optimistic here about, you know, the Ukrainians pushing back and recapturing a lot of territory. It's going to be a lot of territory held by the Russians. I think you're going to see this get worse and worse and worse as the Russians, in frustration and anger and resentment, just start murdering people who just don't want them there. Yeah. And, you know, you bring up a good point here, the distinction between the term Russian controlled and Russian occupied. For the, for the most part, the Ukrainian government tries to use the term occupied, and they will be preoccupied in those zones for those reasons for a long time to come. Suggesting that they are Russian controlled leads to some of the arguments of capitulation that we've heard earlier. Rosa, in a slightly different dimension of all of this, one thing that strikes me this week is that maybe Putin should have stayed in the spy business. Putin was running active measures in the West, and particularly in the United States, that included trying to put his thumb on the scale of the 2016 elections, funding the NRA, doing these things to weaken and divide He's the United States. doing a great States. job, yeah. And he was, this is his greatest success, yeah. right? <laughs> and, and he was really achieving some progress on this as the January 6th hearings on uh, starting on Thursday will indicate. And he kind of overreached. This is not his milieu. Yeah, I mean, and this, in fact, is I was quoting I was quoting Tom on precisely this point uh, in a talk I gave this morning uh, at the Army War College uh, via Zoom. You know, and Tom, you commented in one of our previous episodes of Deep State Radio that this should be the nail in the coffin for realist theories of, of international relations, that the Russian invasion of Ukraine makes no sense. If, you know, from a realist perspective, it just doesn't make any sense. I mean, and, and this is what we have, right? We, Putin was doing something that was working great. He had a good thing going. He was he was messing with the United States. He was messing with other Western democracies. We didn't have the faintest idea what to do about it. It was working. You know, if, if his goal was sort of confusion to his enemies, he was doing a great job and we were playing into his hands in all kinds of ways. And there was every reason for him to just stick with that, stick with that, do that to Ukraine too. 
you know, keep, keep on causing chaos in, in relatively small and deniable ways, you know, not very deniable, but, you know, just wink, 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 just enough deniable that he could sort of get away with it indefinitely. And instead he goes and he does this thing that is incredibly risky and turns out to be incredibly stupid that isolates Russia, that leads to significant strategic losses for Russia, that leads to the, ro- the loss of thousands and thousands of, of actual Russian human beings, Russian soldiers, et cetera, et cetera. Why does, why does he do that? Well, he does that because people don't make rational decisions, you know, or they don't make the decisions that we think they ought to make. And they, they do dumb stuff and they do ignorant things and they make mistakes. And that's precisely what he's done. And I, and I think that, you know, in terms of, you know, Tom's point, that we need to keep that in mind. We think about what Putin or anybody else is likely to be doing in the future, that we can't assume that anybody is going to do what seems like the thing that would make most sense. And I was actually just thinking as, as, as you and Tom were talking about this long summer slog and situations that seem completely untenable. And you look at it from the outside and you say, well, it is so obvious that Putin ought to, at this point, you know, cut his losses, do X, do Y, you know, it's so obvious that it makes sense for the Ukrainians to do such and such. And yet people constantly do not do what it is so obvious that they really ought to do, including us. I was actually thinking about the what's been displacing Ukraine in the news in the last uh, uh, week and a half or so, the mass shootings in Buffalo, uh, in Texas, et cetera, and the usual outcry of it is so obvious that we need to, A, have better, better kinds of gun control when it comes to the types of weapons with which you can kill extremely large numbers of people very quickly, be better mental health care, et cetera, et cetera. We have, we have this long list of things that it is, it is so obvious that our situation is completely untenable and it is so obvious that we, we have to do X, Y, and Z. And yet over and over, we as a society do not do the things that pretty much everybody says, oh yes, it is so obvious. And that's for all kinds of reasons. You know, it's for collective action reasons. It's for because of the nature of the American political system and the specific things that it is, is hard, hard to do. It's, it has to do with our particular legal norms. It has to do with you know all kinds of reasons that we do not do the crushingly obvious thing that anybody looking at it from the outside would say, well, why don't you just? And, and I think that that's probably worth just uh, as a fact about humans, keeping in mind, which is that humans, humans can and do tolerate seemingly intolerable situations for much, much longer than you think they, they would and they will. I would like to, to look at the situation in Ukraine now and say, oh, well, clearly, you know, the, the pressure is on the Russians now to come out with some face-saving thing. And so that's probably what they're going to do. And that'll be good for everybody. But I don't think there's any particular reason to think that that's the case. I think, I think we've seen irrationality from Putin before. I have no particular reason to think that he's going to wake up tomorrow and he's suddenly going to think about this in a completely different way. Excellent point. And, and, and you're right. It's one that has been made here before. It's one that Tom has made with regard to other issues like escalation. This is the point we take a break and we say thanks to everybody who's joined us on the outside from the general public and uh, that uh, we tell them that uh, you know after the break, it's just for members only. And if you want to take advantage of the full benefit of the podcast. If you're a good, podcast. rational human being. If you're rational, being, you spend $5 a month, you get to be a member, you get to hear all of these podcasts, which there are more and more and better and better every single day. So go be a member, sign up and hear uh, the rest of this conversation, which is going to be excellent. 
for now, bye-bye. And if you're a member, stand by. <laughs>